Great, thank you so much. Thank you. Keep that passage open in front of you, uh, and I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in there to Acts chapter 4. Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we know that you are the, the sovereign Lord most high. You rule and reign above us, and you control all things. Well, that is both incredibly encouraging, uh, but also uh, really humbling. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would give us zeal for you, you would give us a determination to take out the glorious good news of Jesus, you would give us confidence in his name and a compassion for the lost, that your kingdom might grow and expand, that your name might be honoured and that we might have great joy in you. Amen. Amen. Well, earlier this month, 28 men and women were killed, and 57 houses were burned to the ground in an attack by Islamist extremists uh, in uh, the community of Yif Pabul in southern Sudan. Uh, Bishop Joseph Mano, the the bishop of that region, said on the 6th of January that massive displacement had happened and humanitarian situation is alarming as food and other property have been burned down into ashes, leaving survivors with no shelters, no food and no safe drinking water. That's what's happening to Christians in southern Sudan today. That is the sort of persecution that our Christian brothers and sisters are experiencing even today as we meet here in the comfort of Prestwich, North Manchester. Now, now the sort of persecution we experience in the UK, it is very different to that, isn't it? Maybe it was the sarcastic remark you received from your neighbor when you invited them along to the reef-making workshop Uh, here at Trinity. Uh, Maybe it's the laugh you had when you invited your colleague along to Hope Explore tonight. You're not a member of the God Squad, are you? The persecution, it is different in different places, but Christians will experience persecution no matter what, wherever they are. Because a world that is opposed to Jesus will also be opposed to his followers too. Now, you've been in the book of Acts over the last few weeks, and we have reached a turning point in the book of Acts. You see, chapters 1 to 3 of Acts, they have been a story of almost uninterrupted success. The church grew from being 120 people in Acts chapter 1 to 4. But you know, the, the mood changes in Acts chapter 4. Having just healed a congenitally blind man, disabled man rather, which was an act of incredible kindness, hatred and opposition arises against the church. So, So the priests and the temple guard, they arrive, and they arrive, verse 1, to put a stop to Peter and John's preaching but by throwing them into jail. 
And then as we read on, things only get worse. And, and the first Christian martyr is martyred. He's stoned. Stephen is stoned in chapter 7. Opposition comes. If you're a Christian here this morning, then you'll already know that, won't you? The opposition comes for being a Christian. But I realize that there are probably a good number of people here this morning who aren't yet Christians. Uh, you're looking into the claims of Christianity, and that is a great thing to be doing. And of course, because you're only looking into the claims of Christianity, you're not going to be facing persecution just yet. But I think this passage asks you a, a different question this morning. This passage asks you, do you realize that you are opposing Jesus this morning? And are you okay about keeping on doing that? That's what I was asking you this morning. We're going to see three things about opposition today. Firstly, we're going to see that Jesus is the problem. Secondly, we're going to see that believers cannot be shut up. And then thirdly, we're going to see that believers entrust themselves to the sovereign God. So firstly, Jesus is the problem. That's verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. So look at those with me. Look at those. Do you notice what it was that really got on the nerves of these visiting luminaries who, who had descended upon Peter and John? These were the top brass of the religious establishment. These were the priests and the Levites. And look at what their bugbear was. Having just heard about the healing of this paralyzed man, they want to know, verse 7... By what power or what name did you do this? In whose name did you do this healing? That word name, it comes up time and time again in chapter 4. It's there in verse 7, but then it's there again in verse 10, verse 12. Over the pages, there again in verse 17, verse 18, and again it's there in verse 30. Now, when we think of the, the word name, we think about it as meaning a, a title or a way of addressing someone. So, so my name is Ralph. That, that is how I'm known. That's, that's my title. That's how you address me. If you want to get my attention, you say, Ralph. I look around. But that is not how the word name was used in the first century. The gathered leaders here in Jerusalem, when they ask about what name you're doing this, they are saying, on whose authority are you doing this? They're saying, we are the authorities round here. This is our area. This is where we're in charge. What right do you have to come in here and do a thing like that? Heal that paralyzed man. They ask the question, but, but I suspect they already know the answer to their question. Because the miracle that took place in chapter 3... It, it had striking similarities to the sort of things that Jesus did. In fact, Acts chapter 3 could almost have been ripped out of one of the gospel accounts. It's just like what Jesus did. 
But, but Peter, in case they haven't got it, he makes it explicit in verse 8. Verse 8, he says, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. You know, there are certain conversations that you can start and you know that if you start it, it's likely to come to a very abrupt halt. Uh, so imagine uh, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, you, you go into the office or you, or you go to the school gate to drop off your kids at school and someone asks you, well, what did you do yesterday? What did you do yesterday? Now, you have a choice of how you respond to that, okay? You, you can take the easy option. You can say, oh, oh, I didn't do much, just a lazy Sunday, just hung out with my friends, had a nice time. Now, if you did that, it, it wouldn't be at all awkward. Uh, and your conversation will probably quickly move on to talk about something else entirely, okay? That, that would be a pretty easy way to start a Monday morning conversation. You could do that. Or... You could say, oh, oh, I went to church. Now, now, that might spark a question. They might say, oh, I used to go to church. I didn't know people still did that. That's interesting. Again, if you say that, if you say, I went to church, it is likely that the conversation will move on. You'll, you'll still keep talking, but it'll be pretty trivial. Or tomorrow morning, when someone asks you what you did yesterday, you could say, I went to church and I heard about Jesus. I heard about how Jesus rules the entire world. And I heard about how the only way to get right with the God who made us is by putting our trust in Jesus. You could say that. And if you do, that will either start one of the most interesting conversations of your day or make them turn around and go and talk to someone else. You see... People are happy to talk about lazy Sundays. People are happy even to talk about church. They're happy even to talk about God in, in a vague sense. You know, you, you have your God, I have my God. But Jesus, Jesus, he is a conversation stopper. Jesus was a conversation stopper in the first century here in Acts chapter 4. He is a conversation stopper Today in Prestwich. Why? Well, let's try and understand why from Acts chapter 4. Just cast your eye back to, to verse 1. It, it tells us that, that the group of leaders that Peter and John were hauled up before consisted mostly of, of Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, they were Jewish believers. They, they were mostly of the wealthier classes of the Jews. So these were well-to-do Jewish people. But they all agreed on one thing. They, they all agreed that there was no future resurrection of the dead. 
They all agreed that, that this life that we're living, where we're making lots of money, this life is all that there is to live. There is nothing beyond the grave. Now, do you see what a miracle that Peter performs in chapter 3, which pictured, pictured Jesus being raised from the dead? Do you see why that miracle so infuriated them? Do you see it? Do you see why Peter's claim that Jesus was the one who God raised from the dead, verse 10, do you see why that claim angered them so much? It undermined their entire belief system. The one thing they agreed on was totally undermined by this miracle that Peter had just performed. And Peter reinforces his point in quoting from Psalm 118 in verse 11. The picture there is a building site. And the picture is of the builders getting to the building site and then rejecting the very key part of the whole building, the stone that holds all the other parts together. But what Peter does is he takes that psalm, Psalm 118, and he changes a crucial bit in the psalm. Instead of it being the stones the builders rejected, Peter says the stone you, builders, reject it. Peter makes it personal. You have rejected the very foundation of true belief. You know, we, we read this, and we can easily think, well, well that's interesting. That happened, you know, 2,000 years ago. But we are not the you of verse 11, are we? We are not the council of the Sanhedrin. We'll read on. Verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Well, that is not very politically correct, is it? Someone has said, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe it doesn't matter. That, that really sums up the mood of our times, doesn't it? You can believe whatever you like. You can believe in Allah and Muhammad, you can believe in the, the Hindu Trimurti, you can believe in the Thetans of Scientology, you can believe in Richard Dawkins' view, the macroevolutionary theory gives an all-encompassing history of origins. You can believe whatever you like, just as long as you don't think it's important. Just as long as you don't get other people to believe the same things as you. But, you know, that approach to belief is completely incompatible with the name, with Jesus. Notice two things from verse 12. Only Jesus saves. It's an exclusive claim. Salvation is found in no other religion and no other worldview. That means that while, while Islam and Hinduism and humanism teach, teach many true things, 
Many things that Christians would want to agree with. And while many Hindus, Muslims, and atheists are, are, are people who do lots and lots of good things, their system of belief at its very foundations is fundamentally and dangerously flawed. Now, perhaps you're, you're sitting there, you hear that, and you think, well, well, Ralph, isn't that incredibly arrogant to say that? To, to say that the whole of Islam, the whole of atheism is fundamentally flawed? Isn't that arrogant? Well, just think for a minute what arrogance is. Arrogance is an attitude of mind. It's, it's a belief that we are better than other people. But the claim that Christianity is true, to the exclusion of all other belief systems, that is not a claim that I am making. It's a claim that is made right here in verse 12. It is a claim that Jesus himself made. And if he is indeed God, then it is a claim that he has the right to make. When you think about it, the most arrogant approach to belief is it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe it doesn't matter. That says that, that I alone have the right to decide what is true. And no one else, including all the world religions that have existed for thousands and thousands of years, have a right to tell me that I am wrong. Isn't that the very definition of arrogance? To think that I know better than everyone else? Secondly, notice how verse 12 ends. Jesus is the only name by which mankind must be saved. There's a play on words here in verse 12, because the word translated healed in verse 10 referring to the, to, the, to the lame man, that that is the same word that is translated saved in verse 12. Now, now, everyone knew why the lame man needed to be healed. He'd been paralyzed. He'd been a beggar for 40 years. It was a no-brainer that this man needed to be saved. But notice what verse 12 says. It says that you and I need to be saved too. That's what it's saying. You and I need to be saved too. In fact, we've got an even greater problem than physical paralysis that we need to be saved from. The, the problem is sin. The, the problem of our rebellion against God. The problem is spiritual paralysis. That is the reason why the name of Jesus is so offensive. It's not offensive because it's an arrogant claim. It's offensive because it demands humility. And just as it did for the Sadducees, it undermines our entire belief system today. You see, every single worldview, whether it be Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, humanism, every single worldview says, do this and you will be all right. The name of Jesus says you cannot do anything. 
You cannot do anything at all to save yourself. You are spiritually paralyzed. You are as helpless as the lame man in chapter 3. But what you cannot do, Jesus has done for you. You see, Jesus is the problem today. Because Jesus humbles us. That's what we learn from verses 1 to 12. Uh, secondly, in verses 13 to 22, we see that believers cannot be shut up. Uh, the religious leaders, they face a real problem. They want to get rid of the apostles, but they can't. Uh, before I became a pastor, I used to work as a law lecturer. And the job of a lawyer is basically to argue. That, that's what we did day in, day out. We made arguments. So someone makes a claim... And then your job as a lawyer is to argue against that claim by, by finding evidence and marshalling evidence and presenting the evidence. Now, you don't have to prove anything as a lawyer. All you have to do is raise doubt about the claim someone else is making. That, that's your job as a lawyer, to make doubt about the claim someone else is raising. This is what the Jewish leaders had to do in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4. Raise doubt about what the apostles were saying. But it was something that they were fundamentally unable to do. And they were left perplexed. You see, these Jewish leaders, they, they were highly, highly educated men. They were schooled in the intricacies of Jewish law at the very best institutions that Jerusalem had to offer. By comparison, Peter and John, they were, verse 13, it says ordinary men. The word used there is the word from which we get our word, idiots. So, so the Jewish leaders, the most highly educated people at the time, the apostles, idiots. Yet these highly educated leaders could do nothing to disprove the idiots. The evidence was incontrovertible. Verse 14. The healed man was standing there, plain for all to see, and they couldn't produce any evidence to undermine Peter and John's claims. You've got to remember, okay, this was just a few short months after Jesus' resurrection in the very same city. Now was the perfect time for the Jewish leaders to go to the place where, where Jesus' body had been hidden and to pull it out and to present it before the people and say, look, these are charlatans, these, these apostles. We've we got Jesus' body. There is no resurrection from the dead. We Sadducees are right. Look, here's the proof. Here's the body. Jesus is still dead. They could have done that. But of course they couldn't because the body wasn't there. There was no evidence to disprove what the apostles were saying. So look at what the authorities do. In verse 15, they send out the apostles. They then talk amongst themselves, decide there's nothing they can do to contradict the apostles. And so, verses 17 and 18, they shut them up. The Jewish leaders decide to bury their heads in the sand. Can I talk to those of you here this morning who aren't yet Christians? Can I say how grateful we are that you're here with us this morning? This is what Trinity Church is all about. 
inviting people to hear about Jesus. And we are just delighted that you're looking into the claims of Jesus. But can I beg you, can I beg you not to end up doing what these Jewish leaders did? If you look into the evidence for Jesus' resurrection and you find it to be wanting, if you find there's not sufficient evidence, then by all means, stop coming here to Trinity Church. That is fine. But if you look into the evidence and you find it compelling, which I think you will do, please don't bury your head in the sand. Please don't stop coming to Trinity Church, hoping that, that because you blocked your ears to this news about Jesus, that somehow it will cease to be true. Because you're not listening, that will mean it didn't really happen. That would be an incredibly silly thing to do, wouldn't it? even if it is the very thing that some of the cleverest minds in our world today do. But can I speak to those of you here this morning who are Christians? Look at how Peter and John respond to the leader's attempt to shut them up. Verse 19. They say, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I love verse 20. What an incredible verse. This should be the motto for Trinity Church. Listen, the, the default position for Christians is that we should obey the state. Romans chapter 13 tells us that. But if the commands of the state come into conflict with the commands of God, then we follow God every single time. Now, a couple of decades ago, the application of a text like this, it, it all seemed rather remote. The, the idea that a state might tell us we can't speak of Jesus. But, but not anymore. It's entirely foreseeable that within a few years, Christian doctors might be under a duty to assist abortion and assist suicide. And doctors will have to say no and face the consequences. It's entirely plausible that not so long from now... Teaching what the Bible teaches about sexuality and marriage will be deemed to be hate speech. But we will need to keep on preaching it and face the consequences. Because we owe allegiance to God, not man. The great German reformer Martin Luther was once hauled up before the, the civic authorities and all his writings were laid out on a table in front of him and he was told to recant what he'd written or face imminent punishment. This is what Martin Luther said. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. You know, persecution of Christians is inevitably set to increase in this country. 
whether it be Christians being imprisoned or, or simply the low-level persecution of, of Christians being passed over for jobs. It will happen. We need to remain strong. We need to make our stand. Because, verse 20, we cannot help but speak of the things we have seen and heard. You know, love for God and love for people heading to an eternity in hell compels us. Christians can't be shut up. Then finally, verses 23 to 31, we see that believers must entrust themselves to the sovereign God. Uh, Peter and John, they get released, and then they head straight back to their own people. They, they head straight back to church. Now, what would you expect them to do when they get back to church? What would you do if you were in their position, just released? Well, I think I might be tempted to flee. You know, head to the mountains while I still had time. Or at least I'd be tempted to, to keep my head down, to keep out of trouble for a few weeks. But they pray. And look at how they pray. They address God, verse 24, as sovereign Lord. Now, now it's tempting when we hear what I mentioned at the start about the Christian community in South Sudan. When we hear that, it's tempting to think, well, something's gone terribly wrong. It's tempting to think that, that God's purposes in South Sudan have somehow been thwarted. But, but the church in Jerusalem, it will have nothing to do with that sort of thinking. They start their prayer by remembering that just as the apostles have been arrested and imprisoned and told not to speak, just as that is happening, God remains sovereign. He remains in control. It is all part of his plan. How could it be any other way? It's just ludicrous to think that the God who flung the stars into space in creation has somehow been outsmarted by a bunch of priests in Jerusalem or a bunch of extremists in South Sudan. And look at how the believers continue to pray in verse 25. They quote Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 was a prayer of King David about how the kings of the earth opposed God's anointed king, David. But the church see that the psalm points beyond David to a future date when the kings of the earth would gather together, when, when Jews and Gentiles would come together under Herod and Pontius Pilate, verse 27, to oppose the Lord, God's anointed. They saw that this psalm pointed forwards to the cross. And read verse 28, it's just staggering. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see, at the very moment where, where evil seemed to have triumphed, God's eternal purposes, his sovereign will was being worked out. Now, now there's mystery in this, but make no mistake. The, the Bible teaches both truths. God's sovereignty is unbreakable. It can never be undermined, not even by the acts of the most wicked and evil people imaginable. But nor can human guilt be excused by appeal to God's sovereignty. The cross 
is what enables the church to pray the prayer of verse 29. You know, I, I would be tempted to pray for protection in circumstances like that. I'd be tempted to pray that my life would be preserved or, or that my enemies would get judged. But the church doesn't pray that. They simply pray that they might be empowered to speak the word of God with great boldness. Whether that results in their life or death. They can pray that prayer because they know that God's sovereign purposes will be worked out. Whatever happens, they simply need to remain obedient and keep boldly proclaiming. This is all the more startling when you consider Peter's recent history. I mean, we read Peter in the book of Acts, we think, wow, I wish I was like Peter. But you know, just 40 days before, Peter was in the garden of a villa in Jerusalem, and a young servant girl asked him, do you know that man on trial? You must know that man on trial. I've seen you with him. And Jesus replied, I do not. Peter replied, I do not. I do not. I do not. So what changed in Peter? Well, if you read the book of Acts, you'll know Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit changed him. Look at what happens before Peter's speech in verse 8. And what happens immediately in response to the disciples' prayer of boldness in verse 31. The Holy Spirit filled the believers. He filled them. He, he emboldened them. He enabled them to speak the word of God. I want to close with a true story about a man named Rigby. Uh, Rigby lived just outside Edinburgh, but whenever he had to go into the city on business, uh, Rigby would stay overnight uh, at a hotel on the Saturday. So the next day, he could go along to the church at St. George's, where Alexander White was the pastor. Now, now Rigby, he was a very, very shy man. He, he didn't really like to talk to people, and he found it really, really hard to share his faith with others. But he resolved that every time he stayed at that hotel... He'd go down to the lobby just before heading off to St. George's, and he'd ask a fellow guest whether that guest would like to come along with him as well. Often they said no, but, but occasionally they'd say yes, and they'd go with him. Anyway, one, one time he had a positive response. A young man joined him. He, he heard the gospel from Alexander White, and he put his trust in Jesus. Now, now Rigby was so excited he really wanted to share the news of what had happened with someone else. But because he was a shy man, he hadn't really got to know anyone else at St. George's Church. So he just sneaked in and he sneaked out every Sunday he went. And so he decided, he decided to, to go to the minister's house and, and tell Alexander White what had happened. That this young man he just brought along had put his trust in Jesus. He got there and Alexander White invited him into the house they sat down and Rigby told White what had happened. And Alexander White said, may I ask your name? He replied, Rigby. Ah, Mr. Rigby, I've been waiting for you for many, many years. Can, can you just wait there? And Alexander White went out of the room 
and he returned, and he returned holding a box full of letters and cards from people who'd come to Christ at St. George's. And every one of them told the same story. How they'd been staying at a small hotel in a rundown part of Edinburgh. And how a shy, very quiet man had invited them to come along to church. Where they heard the gospel and were gripped. Sometimes on that day, sometimes actually many days later at an entirely different church. But they wanted to write back to Alexander White about what had happened. You know, it does not take much for the Holy Spirit to use us to bring others to Christ. Maybe for you, the way the Holy Spirit's going to use you today is just going home and getting on the phone and inviting one of your colleagues, inviting one of your friends to Hope Explore tonight. Maybe it's going to be going around your neighbor's house, knocking on the door, giving them some cookies and saying, we're running something at church tonight to look into the claims of Jesus. Would you like to come with me? I'd love to bring you there. Let us pray as we go out for here. Let us pray for boldness. Confidence in our sovereign God. Confidence that the sovereign Lord will work in and through us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you work in power today by the Holy Spirit as we take out the glorious good news of your death and resurrection for us. Help us to have confidence, not in ourselves, but in your resurrection power at work through us, for your glory and our joy. Amen.